Today we're continuing our, our Advent series, um, and this is the second week of Advent. We know this because there are two candles lit behind me, um, and today we are looking at, the, or the title of the service is Just Another Refugee. Um, everyone, the highlight of everyone's nativity play, um, when Jesus um, or Mary and Joseph are chased um, into Egypt, and today we're going to look at that story. But before we look at that story, there are a, well, there's one thing which I need to clarify, um, because in maybe an hour or so, when I reach my concluding marks, I'm going to say that this is the most important thing you will ever hear. This, and I'm going to impress upon you that, and I'm going to say that this is. This is the thing that you need to remember this week, this year. This is the thing you need to take forward into your lives. But as um, we've just heard this story about um, um, the young family fleeing to Egypt, it's only in Matthew's gospel that this happens. It's in every um, school play, but it's only in Matthew's gospel. It's not in Luke's gospel. Luke is the other gospel that has a good account of the the nativity, but it's not included there. So you might say, if it's so important, why is it not in Luke's gospel? Why is it not in any of the other, other gospels? So let me explain. There are actually four accounts of Jesus' birth in the Bible. Um, today we're going to focus on five. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, as we've just heard, Matthew was written um, really for a Jewish audience. So all the way through his Gospel, he's saying this is just like it was in the Old Testament. Can you see? It's fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. And so all the Jewish people really are going, oh yeah, Jesus really is the Messiah. This, this is the start of something great. And, G- and, and Matthew refers to Jesus a bit like um, King David. King, he, he refers to him as king because he's, he's building that link between... Jesus and David. David's the, um, the hero of, of Israel, of the Jewish people. So he, he compares Jesus to David. Um, and, of course, that's perhaps a good reason why this story is in um, Matthew's Gospel and not others, because he's drawing parallels between the other journey to Egypt and the other journey out of Egypt, which is, of course, the nation of Israel going to Egypt and then coming out again. So that's Matthew. Luke, um, Luke's gospel, we know exactly who Luke's gospel was written for. Does that, do, do any of you know? Theophilus. It's, in the, the, it's, it's at the very beginning of the book. He says, this is so that you, Theophilus, would, um, have a good account of what um, happened. And so Luke is writing his gospel to Theophilus and Gentiles. So all the way through his gospel, he begins to break down the barriers that other people had, the barriers to, to God, because, because all of the theology that developed in Israel was Jewish theology. So you had to kind of be a Jew to access God. But all the way through Luke's gospel, he's breaking down those stereotypes. So in Luke's gospel, the angels visit, um, in the nativity story, they visit Elizabeth and they visit Mary, women. But women shouldn't have, God shouldn't have been communicating with women. But, but Luke introduces these themes. He says, actually, God's concerned with women. And then who, who, does, who sees um, baby Jesus first in, in Luke's gospel? It's the shepherds. And the shepherds were complete outcasts because they stank. And they still are outcasts. But they had front row seats in the nativity. And that's in Luke's gospel. Why is it in Luke's gospel? Because Luke is saying, this is a story for everyone. And no one is on the outside. Gentiles whatever, pagans, this story affects all of you. So that's Luke. John, um, we'll miss out Mark, we'll come back to Mark. 
John refers, it's kind of like a quick overview of the nativity, or the, it's not the nativity, it's the birth of Jesus. Um, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then he goes on a bit, and then he says um, that the Word became flesh. And he's writing to, to kind of Greek um, Hellenistic uh, uh, philosophers, so he's talking their language. It's kind of this existential kind of philosophical approach. And he says, there was God, and God was in the beginning, and, and he made perfect sense, and it's always been the way, and, and he's always existed. But God became man, and he lived with us, and this is the story of God with us. So that's John's gospel. And then the, the fourth account of um, the, the birth is in Revelation. It's in chapter 12, and it it kind of, at the beginning, it says, it pits um, Jesus, or the Messiah, up against this beast with seven heads, and he has ten horns and seven crowns. But basically, that image is an image, so people reading um, Revelation back in the day, they would have understood, ah, this is the empire. This, This beast with seven heads and seven crowns, that's synonymous with the Roman Empire, which is ruling across the world at the moment. And so, um, in Revelation, Jesus is pitted against the Roman Empire from, from the start. And then the fifth, which isn't actually in the Bible, um, Mark, because he doesn't have a nativity uh, uh, story, he doesn't have a, an account um, of Jesus' birth, um, he, he just misses it out completely. But that is interesting, because why, why would you miss out? This incredible story. It's a miraculous story that gives credit to everything that follows afterwards. So why did he leave it out? And I think the answer is because he's so concerned with what Jesus does afterwards. He kind of says it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. It matters what you do. And the fact that Jesus is the Messiah isn't authenticated through a virgin birth or the fact that shepherds and wise men were invited to to the after-show party. The, The important thing is what he did afterwards. And let me tell you about what he did through his life. And then you decide whether you want to follow him and you decide whether he was the Messiah. So four different stories in the Bible, five different approaches to the birth of Jesus. Only one account of the story of the family going to Egypt. But I would say that they kind of deal and it could fit into any of those stories perfectly. I think the theme that is explored and developed in that story of the family fleeing to Egypt fits with all of them. And to to explain this, um, I think I need to tell you about my little son, Reuben, who today is seven weeks old. Oh yeah. Um, And in another seven weeks or so, when he will be eating solids and conversational, um, (laughs) I can imagine that he would say to me, Dad, why do I need to eat this? And I would say, you need to eat that because it's good for you, because I'm I'm wise. And he would say, but why is it good for me? And I'll say, because it has, it will make you strong. And he will eat all of the food and never question me again (laughs) and will continue to eat well for the rest of his life. But then I will be eating next to him. I'll be eating the same thing. And I'll turn to Ruth. Ruth's my wife, and she's a dietitian, which, as far as I can tell, basically means that I have to eat more vegetables. But I'll turn to Ruth, and I'll say, why, why does this make you strong? And, and Ruth says things like, 
Well, because it has whole proteins in. And, and I, I, I wasn't aware of partial proteins, but, but dietitians love whole proteins, whatever they are. She says it's got whole proteins in, and it's got vitamin K in, which helps your blood clot. And I go, oh, all right. And then I eat up my food. But then, when Ruth is with her dietitian friends, this extraordinary thing happens, because I kind of think that's basically it for dietitians. They kind of, they say, eat vegetables, and if you push them, they can tell you why. But, you know, there's not a lot to it, just eat your vegetables. But then when she's with her dietitian friends, you cannot understand a word she says. And because all of the vitamins, vitamin K and all the proteins and all the vegetables and other things, they all have Latin names. So she she slips into Latin and and you literally cannot understand anything she says. And then they they look at a plate of food and where you and I see chips and fish or whatever it is we're eating, beans... They see a kind of spidergram where everything's kind of related, and they know that in that food there are all of these different proteins and there are these vitamins, and they know that in this other food there's these other vitamins that help your body digest those vitamins, and here you've got these other things which, which help you absorb those into, into your liver or something in different ways, and it's all connected. And so they have this conversation about, oh, you know, and you can't understand a word, so you don't really know what they're talking about, but they're talking about how your body's getting different nutrients from the plate and how it's a balanced meal. And then, and then they say something, they'll say kiwis or something, and I think, kiwis, I know kiwis, and I'll say, kiwis, I know kiwis. But then they look at me like, probably much like I look at Reuben and kind of go, it's good. It's really well done. You're almost there. And I feel stupid. But what they mean is that kiwis have all of these other nutrients, and they don't need to say what those nutrients are because they, they know. They, they know it's got these nutrients, and, they, and it has they will, these crazy effects. And if I have my kiwi with my baked beans, it means that this amazing thing will happen. Or if I eat that, it will counteract the effects of the kiwi. So they have this just this knowledge, and they talk about things in a way which you think you know they're basically saying you should have a kiwi with baked beans. Is that what they're saying? But really, they're, they're going deeper than that. And they know all this stuff about nutrients and what's good for you. But I can't access it. And actually, in a way, it, it doesn't make sense because I go away thinking I should have kiwis with my baked beans. Awful decision. But what you, what you can see is that actually there's this, the same conversation had in several different ways. The point is the same. The point is, Reuben, you should have your dinner because we want you to eat. (laughs) We want you to be strong. But when Ruth explains it to me, she can say, well, here's a little bit more information because it has whole proteins and it has some vitamins. And then to her friends who really know and understand a little bit more, she can slip into her Latin. And that's a little bit like, I think, the Gospels. It's not that one's kind of dumbed down, but it's simply that they're talking to different audiences. So one's talking to a Jewish audience, one's talking to a Gentile audience, one's pushing a particular agenda because that's what they think that the Gospel of Jesus and the the story of Jesus is really about. So he wants to impress that. And so it's really the same story, but in order to, to... tell and explain it to the people who are reading their story, they're, they're taking different aspects and they're, they're, they're using that to, to, to make their point. Does that make sense? So in the, in the, the, at the end of John's Gospel, it says this really cool thing. It says, it says this, isn't, this isn't a full account of what Jesus did. 
if I were to record everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough space in the whole world to contain the books that are needed to tell you everything Jesus did. And if that's the case, then it must also be true that the authors had to pick and choose the bits that they wanted to tell. And they picked the bits they wanted to tell in order to to make their point. So, there we go. That's just for starters. Um, So today we are looking at um, this this story where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus go to, um, to Egypt and they flee. They flee Herod, who um, we just heard was jealous. He, he, was, he was worried about this king that he heard was coming. And so he, he had all of these, these innocent children slaughtered. And, and Mary and Joseph and Jesus fled and they became refugees. And this is something that we hear daily now of the the plight of refugees so it's something that we can begin to relate to but it's also something that I don't want to talk about in a dispassionate or kind of academic-y kind of way because I don't think we can talk about this in a did you know that there are 50 million refugees plus in the world and you kind of go oh that's a good stat but this whether there's 50 million or one this is it's an appalling reality. And so what I would like to do, um, I would like to tell you some of the stories um, of people who, who are refugees. And I will also tell you the story of Mary, Joseph, Joseph and Jesus, slightly embellished, but um, trying to explore it a little. So if, if my audio is working... أنا اسمي زيلا زينو عمري 17 عايشة بحمص البابا قال ما عدت فينا نعود بالبيت طلبوا منا أنه نطلع أنه كل العالم طلعت أما طلعنا كان الإقواس قدامنا والدم والعالم القتلة قدامنا طلعنا كتير بطريقة كتير سيئة ولهلأتنا ما بحب الذكرة خاصة البابا كان يعني زمت عينه ب كثير كان حزين والماما كانت كمان حزينه واخوات صاروا يبكوا ما بدهم يطلعوا اما تيتي اما شافنا كانت كثير تعبانه وبدها ترجع ناهو كانت ترجع بعد جمعتين نقلناها لتيتي على المستشفى اساس تحسنت وطابت ورجعت اما هي وطالعه قالتنا بدي ارجع على حمص بدي ارجع على داري على داري ما قدرنا ناخذها كانت هي وصيتها الوحيده انها تندفن هناك وهي قبل كان ظرف كثير صعب هي التيتي ما كانت بدها تموت هون After two days of walking in the shadow of a donkey, he began to doubt himself. He was sweaty, sore, and in a foul mood. Certainly no mood for his wife's singing. He had acted on an impulse. He couldn't explain it. You might say he had seen a vision. But whatever it was, he knew that he had to get his family out of Nazareth. For two days, he had stared at dust and ass, replaying his last sights of his family over and over. 
He couldn't shake the image of his family lined up like a parade of dead melancholics. His dad was crying. Nothing new there. The man had never enjoyed full control of his emotions. Happiness and sadness, fear and disgust. Tears were their release. But recalling the moment he had said goodbye to his three brothers and their wives, his sister, his mum and his spluttering father tugged at his gut and caused him physical discomfort. What was he doing? He remembered their last Passover meal together. They had shared great food and drunk the wine barrels dry. They had stayed up late into the night laughing and putting the world to rights. They had had a fantastic home. They'd had a fantastic family and friends, great friends, who had stuck with them even after the rather premature of their arrival of their son, though they couldn't quite understand why he'd had to insist on his rather outrageous story. And what about his business? He'd spent eight years building a reputation as one of the finest carpenters in town. All gone. All they had, all they knew and loved, they left behind, fearing for their lives. There were reports of the most appalling, abhorrent atrocities. Herod was a madman, bent on power and retaining it for his sons. But what of his own son? What of his wife's son? Could he really be the Messiah, chosen to lead his people, How could he possibly be when they were on the run from a tyrant like Herod? And who was he to act as father to the Messiah? Beyond planes and chisels, he had little advice to offer. اخر ليله قضيناها بسوريا كانت باول نهار ما كان في شيء بس فجاه على الساعه 3 تقريبا بلش القصف طلعنا لقينا العالم كلياتها حامله غراضها ورايحه مشي واخذنا غرضين يعني ما اخذنا شيء كثير المهم مشان نهرب يعني قبل ما يبلش القصف يعني بلش بعد ما رحنا بلش القصف ورفيقه لاخي دق له قال له انه شو اسمه رفيقه الثاني على الساعه 10 هن ما طلعوا دغري تاخروا طلعوا على الساعه 10 كان شغال القصف ام اجت قذيفه عليهم على سيارتهم وماتوا يعني كانوا سبعه هن والاولاد وكلهم بتمنى انه يعني كل شيء يعني دمر كل شيء راح كل شيء يرجع احسن من اول نحسن نرجع لبلدنا انه ما تطول هالشغله She sat on the donkey holding onto her little son, who had become a furious ball of sweat, soaking through her shawl. This was no place for a baby, 
and she was worried that he wasn't feeding enough and that he was sleeping too much. They had packed all the food that they could carry, but it was quickly running out, and she knew the boy was growing hungry. His little tummy ceaselessly rumbled. She had lost counts of the nights and days they'd spent on the road, and they had been ignored in every town they traveled through. The only attention they received was from street gangs who sneered as they trembled past and flies that flocked in their increasing number as their dirty, sweaty clothes turned stale. Each evening, she would fall from her steed, collapsing to the floor. Her husband would gently massage the blood back down to her toes, and after a while, she'd be able to stand again. It was a little ritual that they had developed. It hadn't been an easy journey. And as Herod's massacre had begun, more families had taken to the roads. And the more people on the roads, the more unwelcome attention they received. Quite how they had avoided trouble was surely a miracle. One time, a rough-looking gang of Samaritans approached them and offered them passage all the way to Egypt for just ten shekels. The boy can go free, they said. Two months' wages. It was too much. And she quickly told them that they would make their own way. She could see the concern in her husband as his shoulders tensed with the rising threat. You won't want anything to happen to you, said the man in the middle, a particularly unkept individual who smelt even worse than the young family. He stepped forwards and the flies immediately switched their allegiance. Joseph moved in in front of Mary, who was holding Jesus. We'll take our chances, Mary could sense the fear in his quivering voice. Well, how about we just take our fee anyway? Consider it a toll. The four men growled into the setting sun. Please, let us go. We've left everything we had behind. At that moment, the shadows of what appeared to be two huge characters appeared from behind those of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. The blood drained from the faces of the four men who turned and ran as fast as they could, stumbling and tripping their way through the dunes. Mary span around to face the new threat, but as she turned, the shadows disappeared and they were all alone. What was going on? Was this God's plan? Was he with them at all? Surely the Son of God deserves a palace or at least food in his belly. There must be someone else, someone who could offer the boy more. Security, an education, a home. Ever since she had fallen pregnant, she'd been in chaos. Every time, they'd just somehow made it through, but surely, surely this was not God's plan to save his people. They'd been homeless twice. She'd, been, she'd given birth in squalor. The boy king had, laid, had been laid in a feeding trough. And who were the first to visit? Before her own family had seen her son, shepherds. And then just as things were beginning to settle down, they were on the move again. Homeless, hungry, and vulnerable. أنا اسمي ناهد عمري 39 سنة من مواليد حمص كنت عايشة بحمص كتير مبسوطة قبل الأحداث وبعد الأحداث صار الوضع بهدل كتير ما بقى فيني أكمل قعدة تحت 
تعبت من اعصابنا تعبت كثير عند الاولاد اعصابهم تعبت انهارت اعصابهم من الشيء عم نشوفه والشيء اللي عم نسمعه كنا قررنا نطلع على لبنان مشان طلعت مشان الخوف على اولادي على البنات ما بقى كم اقدر كمل تحت القعده وبالعرض علينا الشغل بتمنى اني يعني بيعون مشان يجيني مدخول من اول وجديد اني اقدر ساعد عائلتي بهالمدخول اللي بيجيني اول شيء علموني على العب الابري كيف اعبيها الخيط بعدين حطونا المعين والحليه بتصيروا نضرب عليهم نحيكم وبعدين صار حطونا الفلين يعني خطوه خطوه علمونا انه كيف بدنا نضرب على الشبك اتمنى اني اشوف اولادي اللي زمان ما شفتهم واعرف شيء عن ابني وارجع لبلدي It was Jesus's birthday. Mary and Joseph had saved um, all they could and traded all they had to buy him a blanket. It was hardly worthy of a king, but it would keep him warm through the nights spent on Egyptian streets. The passing Egyptians looked down on Mary and Joseph with a look of disgust, like they'd just bitten into a bag rape. Their features would soften to pity as they spotted Jesus. But no one ever stopped or offered any help. They were alone in a strange land. By day, Joseph would look for work, and Mary would sit with Jesus by the side of a road, raising grubby hands in a gesture of plea for food, for money, for compassion, even a smile. But it was as though her hands were invisible. She could read their faces. What are you doing here? You're filthy. Why don't you go home from where you came? Mary and Joseph would often ask themselves the same questions. What are we doing here? When can we go home? And is this really God's plan? Hello, Imad. I came from Syria. محافظة حمص على مدينة من ضيعة حلوة كثير اسمها القصير بصراحة ما كنت أنا ما كان عندي خبر إنه حنطلع خلص هلا كان الخطر كثير كبير الوالد هو اللي حس بهالشيء هذا أكثر شيء كان هو مجهز وما كان قايل إنه حنطلع أول شيء رفضته هيك بس بحكم المسؤولية إنه قال لي أيام نطلع كلنا أيام ننزل كلياتنا بعد ما إجت السيارة وهيك قبلت انه اطلع وكنا بالثياب اللي علينا يعني ما قدرنا جبنا معنا شيء لانه اصلا هي فجاه يعني اشتقت كثير لسوريا فرجعت رغم معارضه كل العالم رجعت عانيت نفس الخطر اللي كان بالجي بس كان خطر اكبر وما كنت حاسس بالخوف لحتى انه صرت جوا رحت على البيت لقيت الغبره والهاي صرت اتذكر انه هون كنت اسوي كذا و كنت اول شيء مبسوط انه حارجع على بيتنا وعلى حارتنا ويا لطيف بس فاجات انه ما فيهم حدا والبيت فاضي وهيك فما قدرت استحملت فتره قصيره ورجعت لهون بتمنى بالنسبه لسوريا اكثر شيء بتمنى انه ترجع امنه وحلوه مثل ما كانت واكثر من ما كانت نرجع نحن والعائله سوا نحن والقرايبين الجيران كلهم يرجعوا محلهم
نرجع نسهر على العاصي وعلى الباب وعلى الاشياء كثير فتقدناها هون Those are four stories belonging to just four of more than 50 million people who are refugees in our world at this moment. These are the people who we see on the news but are largely forgotten, really. And when we see them, for a mixture of emotions, we don't know how to deal with it. We kind of wish it wasn't the case. But the story of Jesus begins with this. It begins with Jesus, who was the Son of God. Like, if, you want to, if you're writing a book and you want to tell people this man matters, you say he was born in a palace and he had all the best education and he was, he was, he's always been significant. He's a man who matters. But the story in Matthew is that he was pushed onto the road and people knew what that meant. It meant that they were close, they were clinging on to life. They were close to death because they had nothing. They fled for their lives. And the reason um, why I think that this story fits into all of the, the stories about Jesus is because that's who he is. And, and whether the, the, the nativity story in Luke has the, this account or not, the point of the nativity story is here's a new kingdom which is starting. Here's, here's God's kingdom and it looks very different. To help unpack that, I want to ask if anyone knows what this is. It's a bad picture, so I'll let you off. Because if it were a good picture, you would all say that it's the Prine inscription. And the Prine inscription is important because it's about Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was the Roman, emp- uh, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And Caesar was a big deal. He was really the kind of king that Jesus should have been because he had palaces and he had an empire. In fact, this, um, this inscription goes on to make a case um, for, for six things, or, or well, it's, it's not in a list, but it makes a case for these things. It says, Caesar is a gift of God, and he's a gift of God who is God. He's the, he's the son of God, and he's the benefactor of humanity. He's looking after us. Um, and because, so he, he, his, he stretched his empire, and um, he, he kind of, conquered other nations and once they were conquered and dead they were peaceful because they were dead um, but because he, he kind of established that peace people said he, he's the bringer of peace, like oh what a good guy and they referred to him as saviour because he brought peace so Caesar was, is, is often referred to as saviour and it says that he's bringing good news because he's, he's, he's um, uh, exporting the Roman Um, way of life, um, the Roman Empire, and he's delivering peace, whatever that looks like. But it means that we don't have to come up against these barbarians. Um, So that is, that Caesar, the son of God, saviour, the bringer of good news. It all sounds a little similar. And it's similar because 
the authors of the Gospels, the, the, the authors of the nativity stories and, and other stories about Jesus, use this language to, to draw direct comparisons with Caesar and with other, other powerful leaders. So, so they said that Jesus, Caesar's not saviour, Jesus is saviour. And Jesus referred to saviour just twice in the Gospels. Um, the first, um, or, or once is in Luke, and it's directly followed by the, the, um, the story about the shepherds. So it says, you think Caesar's saviour. Caesar's, Caesar's not saviour. We, we still live in poverty. There was a massive financial crisis. Um, and, and, and there were loads of people who were just on the breadline. They, they had nothing. They were destitute. You think Caesar's saviour. You're not saved. You're hungry. Here are the shepherds. But Jesus is a new kind of saviour, and it begins with the shepherds. Because this, this new kingdom, this new, this new way of living includes everyone. And the other one, I think, is in John. Um, and, and it's when it refers to, um, just after or just before, it's got the story of um, the, uh, the military leader, who's a pagan. So again, shouldn't be involved. But this is salvation that comes for all people. So the point is that Jesus brings an empire, and not an empire, a new kingdom. He's building something new, and it's for all people. It begins with the people who should never have been included, but were included. And so, I think the message, the challenge of this story, is that if we are committed to this, this narrative, and I think we are, because we come here most weeks, and we sing songs, and we pray. But before Jesus had done anything, the introduction he was given was he was taking on the empire. They were comparing him to Caesar. They were saying, Caesar's not king. You think David's the real deal? Check this guy out. He's building a different kind of kingdom, and it's bigger, and it's better than David's, and it's bigger and better and more impressive. And you think Caesar has stretched his empire across the whole world? Well, you're not in it. I'm not in it. Loads of people aren't in it. But let me tell you about someone's kingdom who everyone is involved in. And it starts with the very people who are, who are at the bottom of the list. And I think that this is the most radical thing I genuinely do. I think it's the most radical thing that had ever hit anyone. And it still remains radical today because we are called. Um, earlier um, in, the, in the news, uh, my dad was saying, Steve was saying that um, there's no obligation to get involved in the, in the church thing, in the, um, the Christmas Day thing. And if you can't go, then that's cool. But perhaps there is an obligation because the story that we've committed to, the story that we've said we want to follow, starts by saying, these, it starts with these people. This is not justice. The fact that there are people who are hungry, the fact that, that we, we enjoy great wealth whilst other people's lives are torn apart, sometimes because of the lifestyle that we live, that is not right. And at the beginning of Jesus' mission, his mission, his, uh, his ministry, he tackles that straight off. And that is, I think, what we are called to. I think that's the bottom line. This is a radical revolution. It's an upheaval of all of the injustices. And the people who are downtrodden, enough is enough. That's wrong. 
and we are called to change it. So I think that that is the story of Christmas. I think that's why this story is included. And I think that it's an uncomfortable truth that we need to reconcile with ourselves today. So what I will do is I will leave a little while, just a few seconds of quiet. And I challenge you to think about where you could be more radical in your lives. If you're committed to this story that's supposed to uproot deep injustices, what's our response going to be? I was wondering whether I could, I would have, I, I buy into all sorts of things. I have an Apple phone, I have an iPad, I have this laptop, it's Apple, and I, I, I make videos, so I also have a, a very big Apple computer at work. I have four Apple things. And I, I was wondering, would I... It, it, this is a small, silly thing, but am I radical enough to say, I, I don't need those status symbols? Am I radical enough to sell what I don't need and say, actually, the story I'm committed to is that these people who have nothing are more important than having the latest phone. Am I even radical enough to do that? So let's take just a little pause and I challenge you to think about how you can be radical because this is a story that should affect everyone, but it should affect us.